0: Kids, thank you, Sean and Christine. If you are remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We start the Advent season this year. Um, Advent is all about coming. It's all about waiting. And this year we want to really reflect on um, the miracles of the Advent season, the miracles of the Christmas story. And if you've ever paid attention to the story, there are small and big miracles that litter this story. And we just want to look at uh, a few of them uh, over this Advent season. Uh, Miracles are often uh, defined as an event that is extraordinary or extraordinary, if you think about it, outside of the ordinary. Um, But as we think about miracles, I think there's a miraculous nature to um, just the ordinary existence of life as well. Um, We travel every year uh, to North Carolina, and where we stay in North Carolina for Thanksgiving um, is a neighborhood that's a relatively new development, and it doesn't have a whole lot of uh, mature trees like we do here um, in Baltimore. And so um, when the sun sets in the evening, you can really see the glory of it in all of its fullness. Um, Colors that um, are part of every color of the rainbow, it seems, pinks and blues and and purples and and deep reds, and it's just uh, beautiful. Our kids go out and take pictures of it every night because it's uh, uh, just so beautiful. And then once the sun sets, um, the stars come out, and you can see them vividly because it's not an urban area, and there's not all this um, light pollution. You can see the stars and outline the constellations, and each week or each time we're there, uh, we're just reminded of the miraculous, Um, Of course, it's ordinary. The rising and the setting of the sun, the coming out of stars, those are ordinary things that happen every day. Um, Scientifically, we know exactly what is happening, um, but still, every day it is uh, a miracle in its beauty and in its order. Uh, I thought about this week when I thought about just my own kids and, and, and the birth of my own kids and what a miracle that was. Um, Being there in the room with them as they are born, seeing them born, holding a baby in my arms that's only a few minutes old, um, it's amazing. There's people that are there every day in labor and delivery departments, they see it, we all understand scientifically how babies are born, and yet to hold a a, a two-minute-old child in your arms is absolutely miraculous, even if it is ordinary. And so there are miracles of the ordinary, but there's also miracles of the extraordinary, times where God breaks in and does something outside of the normal miracles of everyday life. And I want you to reflect this Advent season, do you still believe in miracles? Do you still believe that these things happen? Do you still believe that the extraordinary interrupts the ordinary From time to time, interrupting the flow of our normal lives. Has science and reason taken away all those things? Or do we still believe in miracles and the extraordinary? When it comes to the Bible, if you read the Bible, you're going to be confronted with that question from the very beginning. It feels like there's a miracle on every single page of the Bible. And it forces us to ask that question do we still believe in miracles? Uh, Albert Einstein famously said, I thought this was so interesting, Um, Albert Einstein um, famously said that there are two ways to view the world, either the miraculous is nowhere or the miraculous is everywhere. I thought that was interesting for arguably one of the smartest guys ever to have lived to argue that the miraculous is everywhere, and that's the way he wanted to view the world. And so as we come to the Advent season, know that the miraculous is everywhere. God interrupts the ordinary miracles of everyday life to do something extraordinary. And the question we should all ask ourselves this Advent season is, does he still perform these miracles? Can he enter into your story to interrupt the normal, to interrupt the mundane, to do something extraordinary? And so the first uh, miracle we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 uh, through verse 38. So even though you've probably heard this story before, think about what a miracle it was in that moment and what it continues to be even today. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Father, we're thankful um, that um, we get to celebrate an Advent season to sort of uh, not only focus on the, the miracle of Christmas, but to have a whole season where we focus on the waiting and the anticipation for your coming. Um, Most of us probably don't like to wait, and yet for thousands of years, your people had to wait for their Savior to come. And then in the great miracle of the Christmas story, you came to become one of us, fully God and fully man. Father, the truth is we've probably heard these stories for a long time. We probably have little nativity scenes in our own homes that remind us. And so it's easy for us to go numb to the, the miracle of this story. But we pray that as we think about these miracles this Christmas season, that they would strike us anew and afresh as to how great you are because of what you've done, not only in time and space, but what you do in each one of our lives that is miraculous. So be with us now as we look at Mary's story. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, It's been about 10 years since uh, Nelson Mandela died. Maybe you remember Nelson Mandela, or if you don't, you've studied him in the history books. Um, Nelson Mandela specifically advocated against South African apartheid, uh, was imprisoned as a result of it, um, spent 27 years in prison until he was released from prison, and then was almost automatically elected Uh, to be the president of South Africa. His story is remarkable. Um, It's told in history books, as it should be. Um, And about 10 years ago, he passed away. I believe he was in his 90s when he passed away. And a lot of people wrote articles and stories about him, obviously, to pay uh, homage to him. Uh, Christianity Today was one of those uh, news outlets that Uh, wrote an article about his passing, and while the article paid a a lot of honor and homage to him uh, upon his death, it also highlighted uh, the fact that the story isn't maybe quite as neat and tidy as we often think uh, that it is. And it talked about um, the racial violence and the racial injustice uh, that still exists in South Africa um, the millions of people that are still locked and imprisoned into poverty. And I thought it actually did a good job of honoring him, but also highlighting uh, that the story isn't as neat and tidy as we often think it to be, or as the history books tell us. I think that's reflective because life isn't always neat and tidy, right? Um, our lives are not always as neat and tidy as they Seem to be from the outside. And we're always reminded of that during the holiday season. You know, this is the time of year where we're really excited for the holiday season and we think nostalgically of all the, the wonderful things that are gonna happen over the next couple of weeks. But chances are you'll probably reach a point um, in the next couple of weeks where you will be eager for the holiday season to be over, right? Because of all the, the things that often come up in the holiday season. For many people, the holiday season. Is is not a, a, a season of joy uh, for almost all of us. It's not as neat and tidy as we often remember it to be. Um, it's always full of incessant busyness. There's always these awkward encounters with uh, family members we don't see a whole lot or coworkers that we have to interact with at, at holiday parties. There's the crazy cultural materialism that is all around us as well during the holiday season. So it's never as neat and tidy as uh, our sense of nostalgia would like it to be. And I think we have to remember that as we think about the, the birth of Christ as well. Because we have these nativity scenes, and Sean actually put one up this week, and it's beautiful up here on the stage. We have these nativity scenes, and often everybody's smiling, and there's this soft glow on everybody's faces. But the truth is, the birth of Christ was far from calm, it was far from serene. In fact, it was utterly, utterly chaotic, um, it was intensely personal. And yet God chose to unravel his cosmic plan through the personal lives of these few individuals. And of course, it was anything but neat and tidy. And instead, it was remarkably chaotic. And that is certainly true of Mary's story. We often see Mary in these nativity scenes or in artwork with a glowing pose to her and um, she's sort of very beautiful and everything's serene and perfect, but the reality was probably much different for her. Now, we Protestants, we get a little funny about Mary, got to be careful, always want to be very careful when we talk about Mary, right? Um, But the scriptures do make it clear that she was a remarkable woman. She certainly needed Jesus, just like you and I do. That's why she says uh, that Jesus is her savior, not only her son, but her savior. But the scriptures point out that she was a remarkably blessed woman. And there's three things about her story that make her very significant that I wanna see from our text this morning that also tell us something about the Christmas story and ultimately about um, the gospel story as well. And the first might seem bizarre... But it is very important, and that is the significance of Mary's virginity. The significance of her virginity that the passage is very careful to highlight. Now, think about this story. Um, Gabriel visits Mary. She's obviously frightened by the appearance of this angel. And he explains to her that she will conceive and she will bear a son. Mary is quick to say, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel responds to her, this will be made possible because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of modern people have read this passage, and it's become very fashionable in in the modern world to just see this as a myth and to deny the reality of the virgin birth. Um, The thought that a miraculous conception could happen um, just doesn't seem plausible to modern people, and yet we believe that it is necessary for the gospel story to be true. You see, the scriptures teach us that each of us um, are, are born with the corruption of sin in our lives. We're sinful not just because of the things that we do day in and day out, but we're actually born with a corruption due to Adam's sin. And the scriptures make it clear that Adam, our first father, when he sinned and fell in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity fell with him. And so what that means is that each and every one of us is born with this pollution. We're born with this corruption except for one person. Because Jesus was conceived miraculously, he was born without that corruption. He was born without that pollution. And that was important because he needed to be perfect, to be fully God and fully man. He needed to be perfect for this plan of redemption to work out. In order for his sacrifice to be effective, he had to be a perfect sacrifice and so if Jesus had been born by just ordinary means his plan of redemption would not have worked it would not have been effective and there would be no rescue available to you or to I it's interesting to note though that throughout history you know we often think of the the Christmas story is is unique and it is unique in a lot of different ways But if you look at history and the cultural idea of a miraculous conception, you see it all throughout history. It continues to to kind of show up. Roman religion taught that there was a miraculous birth to the god Mithra. If you've ever read the story of Romulus and Remus, they were conceived through the power of the god Mars. Alexander the Great and his mother Olympias were both believed to be a descendant of a god. The the Buddha uh, in his story had a unique conception to him. Dionysus was conceived when a god impregnated a human princess. And so you see these miraculous conception stories all throughout history. And then all you got to do is watch the movies to see more. I think there's virgin conception in the Star Wars movies and and, and even the Superman stories, uh, there is a miraculous conception to him as well. So not only does history tell a lot of these stories, but our culture tells a lot of these stories as well. Why is that? Well, whether it's Superman or, or Alexander the Great or whatever it is, I think we instinctively know that our rescue needs to come from someone who is different than us. Someone who is other than us. Someone who is set apart and doesn't bear our own corruption and our own brokenness. And this is why Mary's virginity is so significant. And it's also why the Christmas story is so miraculous. So her virginity is significant, but also we see here that her humble estate is significant as well. In the Zechariah narrative, which we're going to look at next week, uh, we'll see that that an angel showed up to announce a birth. And in that story, the angel shows up exactly where we would expect an angel to show up. Uh, The angel showed up in God's temple. That's the place where Jews believed that God dwelt with humanity. Um, It's where everybody went to interact with God. If you were there, you were devout, you were pious, you were ceremonially clean. And so you expect God to show up in a place like this. But in Mary's story, in this story, God showed up in the most unlikely of places. God shows up to a peasant girl in a terrible community. Nazareth had a terrible reputation, right? Um, And uh, everybody knew it. Maybe people drove around with cars and had the bumper sticker that says, Nazareth, actually, I like it. Like what you see here in Baltimore, right? But Nazareth had a terrible reputation. It was insignificant at best. It was despised, unclean, and a a town locked in poverty at worst. And, And this is where God shows up. And Mary, he shows up to Mary. Mary's a nobody. Uh, She has no heritage that we know of. We don't know a single thing about her parents whatsoever. She likely had no social standing, no cultural clout. She was extremely young, and she was probably the wrong gender. And yet God chose her. You see, all throughout the scriptures, this pattern of God choosing the weak things of this world To confound the strong. And that certainly is true of Mary in our story. We know this is true because consistently people had a really hard time believing that Jesus was who he says he was. Why? Because people even say this later on. Could anything good come from the town of Nazareth? Could anything good come from there? And so, how could Jesus be from Nazareth and be one who is good? But isn't it interesting that when God comes to fulfill all his promises, most believe he would come in might and pomp and circumstance. He would come as a mighty warrior who would make things right through a demonstration of his superior power. And yet instead, God chooses to be born as a baby to a nobody in a crummy backwater town. It's a great reminder that God often shows up in the most unexpected and unlikely places. I can't tell you how often that's been true of even my own life, of places where God has shown up unexpectedly and surprised me with how he chooses to work. People who've come to Christ that we would never expect to come to Christ. Circumstances to work out in ways that we would never dream or never expect. Grace demonstrated in unlikely places and in unlikely ways. And here's why this is good news. Do you ever sometimes think that your life just feels chaotic and messy? That it's just a, a jumbled mess of this and that, you don't know how to make sense of it? Well, take comfort. Why? Because that's exactly the kind of place that God likes to show up. The last thing I want us to see about the significance of Mary here is not just her virginity, not just her humble state, But I also want us to see and remark, really, at the significance of Mary's faith here. I want you to think about this for a second because it's got to set in. Most scholars believe that Mary was roughly 12 years old when the angel Gabriel visited her. Think about that, 12 years old. She was betrothed to Joseph, as we learn, and and in the ancient world, um, marriage would come in in two different stages. There would be a betrothal for a young girl, likely at the age of 10, where her parents would arrange it, they would um, uh, figure out a bride price and all the details, they would sign a deed saying this marriage was going to happen, and yet even at the betrothal, the young girl would still live with her family for roughly another year And then after that year, they would be married, usually around 12 and a half years of age. And that marriage would eventually be consummated. And so when the angel shows up, Mary uh, has been betrothed to Joseph, but she had not yet consummated or finalized that marriage to this young man. And so just imagine Mary's situation. She's twelve. And, and she's just been told that is she is she uh, pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who would believe her when she told this story? Would you believe her if she came to you and told you this story? And so imagine the, the, the whispers and, and the scandal that would no doubt follow her for the rest of her life because no one would believe this story. Imagine what she was going to have to tell Joseph. Imagine what she was going to tell her parents about this story. Here's this young girl, the same age as in sort of an average, awkward, American middle school girl, and yet she is confronted with this reality. Immediately, the passage tells us that she left her home to travel some 80 miles um, to visit Elizabeth. Now, we often wondered, you know, why does she, upon learning this news, immediately travel this distance? Well, perhaps, her, we don't know, but maybe her father kicked her out of the house because of the story that she was telling. Maybe she had nowhere else to turn because no one would believe her except for Elizabeth, who herself had just experienced a miracle. Or maybe she wanted confirmation of Gabriel's message. After all, Gabriel said to her, the sign of this miracle is the conception and pregnancy of her barren cousin Elizabeth. So we don't know why she traveled, but she did. But don't miss this. This event, this announcement that we read this morning, would alter Mary's life and her reputation forever. The whispers would probably never stop. The storytelling behind her back would probably never cease. She would probably be ostracized or even more, uh, or even worse, labeled as an immoral woman, a loose woman, a, a, a sinner who couldn't control herself, all at 12 years of age. And yet despite all that, her response and her faith is remarkable. Look at what she says in verse 38. And Mary said... "'Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. "'Let it be to me according to your will.'" Mary's response was remarkable obedience. She understood in in this moment that now obedience to God would mean for her all sorts of cultural disgrace, Uh, disgrace that would follow her for the rest of her life and yet she saw more value in what God was offering to her than anything else. For her, it was well worth a life of disgrace that would follow. Friends, I think practically many of us um, settle for a, a bland Christianity uh, that has a low risk, low reward factor to it. What I mean by, what I mean by that is this. We like all the benefits that come from having a relationship with God, and there are so many blessings and benefits like forgiveness and um, eternal security and adoption, sonship, being called a child of God, but often we like all the benefits, but we're unwilling to take up the risks that may be involved in following God, and as a result, our faith often is skin deep or it feels very shallow. We're too afraid to, to sort of share our faith with a coworker or a neighbor, because what if it makes things awkward, or we might be labeled as a fanatic? Uh, we don't want to pursue the right path in our place of work because it might interfere with our efforts to climb the corporate ladder and uh, build our reputation. We, we want to keep God out of certain elements of our lives. Um, because it's a little too risky. We don't want to let God, let God into that part of our lives because he might ask too much or it might be too risky to follow him. And, and that's why when you ask most Christians, they, they don't necessarily describe their faith as particularly adventurous. It's just a thing. It's just a part of our lives. But what the Mary story reminds us is that God calls us to risk To often step out in faith, to no longer make success and reputation a thing that we live for. Instead, we live for obedience to God and his calling on our lives. What's so beautiful about Mary is you see her in her a joy at the opportunity to do this. Joy at the opportunity to obey God and his call no matter how costly and risky it would be for her. One commentator said she unreservedly embraces the purposes of God without regard to its cost to her personally. She is willing and even joyful to go along for this ride that the angel Gabriel presents to her. But here's what's so beautiful about this story. As exemplary as her faith is, and it is remarkable, As exemplary as her faith is, she still is not the hero of this story. Nor would she ever even say she was the hero of this story. Instead, the hero of the story is the child that she would bear. You see, God asked Mary to do something costly. He asked her to bear a disgrace for the purposes of God. Sometimes he might ask us to do the very same thing. But he never asks us to do anything that he isn't willing to suffer himself. You see, that baby that would be born to Mary would grow up. He would be named Jesus, and he would walk also a path of disgrace and rejection. At the very end, he would be stripped bare by his own creation who would be hurling insults at him And spitting upon him, he would bear the weight and the disgrace of our sin being executed on a cross as a common criminal, a man of sorrows who would be rejected by men. He did it for Mary. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it so that we who have been disgraced because of our sin can be accepted and enfolded into the family of God. So friends, my challenge for you this year is as you reflect on the Christmas story all over again, recognize that it is far from nostalgic. It's messy. It is scandalous. It is chaotic. It defies our expectations, but it is the precise and exact way in which God uncovers his deep and abiding love for us. Ultimately, the Christmas story points to the significance of Christ's sacrifice and his great love for us, which may be the greatest miracle ever. At the end of this narrative, and you could keep reading if you want in Luke chapter one, Mary writes a song of praise. And it's amazing that it's a song of praise. There's no hint of frustration No hint of anger towards God, of resentment, no hint of fear, um, no despondence, no regret, only praise. It says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Friends, in the busyness and the messiness of our lives, God shows up and he demonstrates his love. So be reminded of that good news this morning and this Advent season, whether it's from the first time or for the millionth time, he takes our disgrace away. Why? Because he himself was disgraced. He is the hero of history and the hero of our story and the great miracle worker. Let's pray.